Okay. Hey everyone, welcome to the World Podcast of Oz. This is Jared Davis. And Sam Alonso. And today we're going to continue our talks about the movies of Oz with one that's not exactly Oz. Maybe in title, but that's more through publicity, which can be misleading. What we are talking about is The Magic Cloak, a 1914 silent film based on Elfink Baum's Queen Sixio Fix, or The Story of the Magic Cloak. It was produced by the Oz Film Manufacturing Company. Elfink Baum wrote the, the screenplay. Before we start, there's a few things we need to say about uh, this film, and that is there are two different versions. Oh, yes. There's... Um, I've actually just read the book and watched the three different versions on the World of Oz DVD, the 2005 three-disc set, and the 70th anniversary DVD set. Okay, isn't the one on the World of Oz pretty much the same cut as on the 2005 DVD? There's a, sl- um, there's a subtle difference. There's the opening and the... Certainly the quality of the pictures. Um, the World of Oz is very grey, like it's kind of soft, and the picture starts more or less quickly, like with the screen title. On the 2005 set, it starts with the the MG Library Presents, and the colours are a little bit more clear, like the black and white is a little bit more separate, um, so 2005 is a slight improvement over the world one, yeah. but as we said, there's three, which, and the third one is on the 70th anniversary set for the Wizard of Oz, MGM, Judy Garland musical, of course. Yes. And this one is more or less a direct uh, transfer from the original film strip, and it's a longer version. Extended. Well, there's some extended scenes, some new scenes, but there's a couple scenes from the other version that were left out, I noticed. Mm-hmm. Yes. Just a few shots, nothing too major, but still, if you're a big film collector, it's enough to make you say, okay, I'll still keep the shorter one. And then that isn't even the complete version. No, unfortunately, it's still incomplete. Yeah. Because we've only just recently... Some one more than the other has discovered a deleted scene on YouTube, which makes the film just a little bit more faithful to the book. Uh, I guess we'll get to what exactly was filmed later when we take a look at the plot. But yes, someone found a scene on a 35 millimeter film and they posted it on YouTube. Yeah, thank goodness for that. This is what David's magazine had to say, and I quote. Actually, there are several bits in the long version of the Magic Cloak movie that aren't on the Warner set. He's still unclear of how many versions of this film exist. There is the one from the Baum family, which had all the negatives from the generally known versions of the three films. In the late 70s, Ray Powell claimed to have bought a much longer version of the film, and he was getting it transferred. Sadly, Ray died while this film was being copied, and to the best of David's knowledge, no one knew where or who was transferring it, and it is lost again. In the early 80s, Fred Meyer found a version that was longer than the standard version, which had a new spoken narration. This was still on 16mm, not video, 
which David saw at a Gillikin convention in 1982. A few years ago, a much expanded version of Magic Cloak was shown at the Oz at the last Osmopolitan convention. A dark, murky print, but with scenes never seen before, definitely not on the standard video release. David thinks this is part of the print David Willard Cowell had acquired, possibly the one Ray Powell lost, or the 16mm copy of the one with dialogue, which belonged to Fred. Oh yes, and speaking of the narration, um, the narration is on the World of Oz version. The narration is thankfully not on any of the future ones, because the put, because the woman who reads it either starts too late or too soon, and I'm, I think we are better off with a silent film without the narration. We can read it ourselves. Yeah. Which the the text screens are on are shown showing for quite a while, like a little bit longer than necessary, but they're they're long enough to read. And now let's have to take a look at the story here. I'd mm-hmm. say it's a fairly faithful adaptation of the book, but then it was written by the author. I would say so too. It's it's faithful enough. Yeah. It doesn't have a whole book, but um, mainly just more the important um, key elements of the book. The film begins with uh, fairies in the... Okay, the film calls them the fairies of Oz. In the original book, it was the Forest of Bursey, and it's called Bursey here. And the Forest of Bursey is outside of the Land of Oz in the books, so it's not clear if Baum still intend that to be the case in the film. But as he doesn't say otherwise, we might still assume that. Anyways, they decide to weave a magic cloak that they would use to benefit mankind, and each wearer of the cloak gets one wish granted to them. And if the cloak is stolen, it doesn't work for the thief. It loses its power, so to speak. The man in the moon advises them to give it to the most unhappy person they can find. We also have the opening of the film, crisscrossing, going back and forth between that scene of the fairies and their cloak, with the death of the king of Noland, and um, Bart and Fluff becoming orphans, like their father dying. That's a scene where we don't see in the original book, as well as Aunt Rivet's um, second sight, so to speak. What did you think of Aunt Rivet having a second sight in the film, not in the book? I thought it made her... Uh, I, th- I think it actually makes her an interesting character. You know, In the book, she's depicted as a mean aunt at first. Well, not mean. She's just pretty stern. Like, just more believing in um, disciplinary action... Maybe corporal punishment, that sort of thing. Just she's just very firm and stern, not necessarily mean. That's just how the children would see her. Yeah. Later on, uh, she manages to lighten up a bit. Absolutely. Anyways, their father is a ferryman, and what happens is he drowns. Now, Antrobet saw this and was going to try to get there in time to stop it, but it was too late. Hmm. You know, with she, um, the father dies trying to get a man who asks to go across the Vinegar River. Vinegar, I don't know, but maybe it's just a funny name. But don't you th- do you think that that man being asked to be ferried across the river is Elfinkbaum in the cameo himself, or just a resemblance? I think he resembles him. I don't really think it was Baum, though. Hmm. No one's really been able to point it out and say, hey, that was Elfinkbaum. 
But, you know, he could be in the film somewhere, mm. and we just haven't been able to spot him. But no one's really say, mm. said, that's definitely Alpha Bomb yet. Mm. That is a good point, because this was um, five years before he died, and he was in his late 40s, so um, he wasn't exactly dark-haired by that time, maybe pretty light-haired, so... Um, yeah, it might have been a younger man who looked like him, but we'll never know for sure. And as we said, the film crisscrosses between these three scenes, the fairies and the cloak, the king of Norland dying, and um, Bud and Fluff. So I know this was the early days of film, and um, they were still getting used to it, but I wish it had been cut better, like the scenes being in chronological order, like first the fairies, then the old king, and then Butterfluff. Like, not always going back and forth between them. Yeah, because it's obvious that it's not all happening at the same time, because in Noland it looks like it's nighttime, mm. and it also looks like it's nighttime in the Forest of Bursey, but at... But it's daytime when Butterfluff lose the dad. And, it's also co- and that also seems to cover quite a bit of time. Uh, since the children have no one else to take care of them, Aunt Rivette decides to take them with her to her home in the city of Noland, which in the book was called the city of Knoll. But oh, I can't believe I didn't notice so notice that straight away. Did? It's been quite a while since I've read the book, so. Oh. Uh, <laughs> but yes, it's pretty. I think it makes sense. And of course, you see the little oh fun bit there, Noland. No land. This place doesn't exist. <laughs> Although one time a screen has without the D, so it's no land. Ah. Okay, so uh, the king's counselors of Noland have found a law in a book that tells them the f- that the 47th person to enter the gate, be it man, woman, child, humble or noble, shall be crowned the supreme ruler of no land. Yes. Hereafter. So guess what's going to happen? <laughs> There's a funny scene where one of the characters, who is actually named Jicky in the book, but mistakenly called Zixi in the film, um, tries to count two bears as well. So that's not in the book, but it's a, a pretty good funny moment in the film, which adds to the um, comedy. Yeah. Which Bourne was trying to go for in his films. Yeah, and it cuts back and forth between the scene at the gates of Nolan to uh, Bud, Fluff, and Entrevette uh, making their way towards the city. And with them is their faithful donkey, Nicodemus. <laughs> um, he wasn't, he didn't have that name in the book, did he? No, he wasn't named there. In fact, Bomb does a bit more with Nicodemus here in the movie, so that's mm. probably why I gave him a name. Yes, he does a lot more with um, the donkey in this film than he does with the book. Uh, we'll leave that little hint for now and get on to that later. And while uh, they're heading to the city of Noland, uh, her fluff meets the fairy messenger who has the magic cloak. And she's bestowed um, the gifts of the fairies and um, has her wish granted. Which is to be happy once more. Mm-hmm. And in that scene also with um, Fluff being presented the magic cloak, that scene looks so much like the um, 
plate in the book, doesn't it? Like just where it does. Love is standing. The gates, like the arches and stable. It looks so close. Yeah, the book. The book was illustrated by Friedrich Richardson. It was originally uh, serialized in the magazine Saint Nicholas. But he did some very gorgeous designs. In fact, he probably rival he he was probably the best illustrator for any of Baum's books aside from John O'Neill. Mm. And Denslow, even the, just that one time. Denslow got nothing on Richardson. The copy of Queen Sixty I have is a Dover paperback. It has all the pictures, but the color plates are in grayscale. Like so, what would be color is black and white or gray. So I unfortunately don't know the joy of seeing the color plates, uh, just um, black plates, more like it. Yes, and the film very, uh, really follows these uh, illustrations very well. I guess Baum really liked them. And they did a great job, too, like sometimes adding what wasn't in the film, like visually. Like they meant even if something was not illustrated, they still showed great costumes and sets at times. Yeah, it, it, the it, the look of everything really matches together pretty well. Okay, so then it turns out Fluff's wish for happiness really comes true because Bud winds up being the 47th person to enter Nolan, so he becomes the new king. Bud has to hold court, and in the book it's during this time that Andrevet comes and demands to be treated like royalty. Yes, and in the book we see some more of the court, but I think it's right that they don't share all the scenes from the book in the film, because it might have been a bit long. Well, who knows? They might have actually filmed some of them. Oh, yes, good point. Because we're getting to that little scene that popped up on YouTube. Because, yes. alright, there's a part in the book where Aunt Rivette is going to buy some new dresses as befitting her new rank as the Aunt of the King. And now, wants- this... Yes, this, yes, sorry to interrupt, keep, sorry to keep interrupting, but this scene with Antwerpet comes, appears on the 70th anniversary set of The Wizard of Oz, so um, this would not be seen on the earlier films, but it is on the 70th set. Anyway, so, because she doesn't have anything else fired where her fluff loans her the magic cloak. Now, in this deleted scene, it shows Antwerpet standing outside, and I'm in such a hurry, I wish I could fly. And she suddenly grows wings. And something here that shows that there, uh, there are definitely different cuts is that the intertitles for this scene look very different from what uh, is in the other video versions. The, like the, it's very black and white, as you can see, but also um, from watching the YouTube video, it appears we see the full size of the image. Nothing's cropped. We see a blackboard along the image, and the text screens also glow white on what's supposed to be the borders and stuff. Yes, but the text screen there, it's a different format. It's like what appeared in uh, His Majesty the Scarecrow of Eyes. A more decorative border. Yes. yes. So, yeah, there, there were different cuts of the film uh, made available. So this is one reason why it's hard to piece together every little bit of the film, because they did make different cuts. There are different versions out there. Which can be, which is confusing and maybe a little bit irritating at times. 
uh, it's only irritating because you're thinking there's all these different scenes out there. How much did they film? How much is still left? How much did they cut? Anyways, the, the scene on YouTube shows uh, Jicky with the magic cloak, Jicky the servant. And in the book, he makes a wish for his own servants, which happens, which they might have filmed because it shows him with the cloak later at the very end of the scene, the scene alone in the hall. But we don't. But that's where it ends. So we don't know how many more of the wishes granted by the cloak were actually filmed. And now let's cut over to Nicodemus. Um, with Nicodemus, there was a subplot um, of him not liking the city of Norland, so he runs away, managing an escape from Aunt Rivette, until some robbers capture him and bring them to their camp. And Nicodemus sees that the robbers have also stolen a little girl named Mary. He manages to escape from the robbers himself. Mary tries to get away with him, but she's captured again, so... Nicodemus joins forces with a, a lazy line who looks familiar... Azup, who we saw previously in the Patchwork Goal of Oz, and a friendly crow, and they band together with a bunch of other animals like a tiger, a rabbit, a kangaroo, an elephant, a woozy, and several other animals, a few, and they attack the robber's camp and save Mary and return her to her parents. Apparently this victory gives Nicodemus a bit of clout with the animals, but he finally decides, you know what, I miss Butterfly, so he decides to go back to Noland. We then turn to another character, Queen Sixty of Ix. And actually, we should mention how this film was at one time two separate films, The Magic Cloak and The Witch Queen, like separate films, which explains its incomplete status and the many deleted scenes and inconsistencies of cuts. Yes, it had to be cobbled together there. And there was also another cut called The Magic Cloak of Oz, so there's at least three different cuts that we know that were were made. That have yet to be fully discovered. Zixie has offended some higher power and was forced to carry a mirror in which her true age will always be reflected. That's different from the book, yes. In the book, Zixie is many centuries old, but she's made herself look eternally young. But her true self is always reflected in a mirror. Which, uh, with a nifty special effect or trick photography of sorts, which we won't reveal. You'll have to see that for yourself. Yes, we just can't describe it. It's really good. But um, Zixie hears about the magic cloak from a minstrel played by Vivian Reed, who appears throughout the silent films. So Zixie disguises herself, not as mistrust the witch teacher. And she doesn't declare war on Noland. Oh no, which I'm glad they left out. But Zixie disguises herself as a new maid for Fluff. And Jiki, who I don't know why they actually made him Zixie as well, he sees her real reflection and is a little bit surprised, but Zixie manages to steal the cloak and is mentioned of being a early and different type of a vampire. Not the blood-sucking type, but um, a an alluring, seductive type to the soldier to get, make her escape. And she tries to make her wish for the magic cloak, but the fairy messenger says that her theft of the cloak will not grant her wish. I think that they actually included the fairy messenger appearing a bit too soon. Like, they maybe could have had her appear in the next shot, 
but then as soon as Dixie changed back to a normal form. But um, anyway, that's a good change from the little novel, I suppose. And Sixie, distraught by having wasted an effort, leaves the cloak there in the field. And now for the big bad guys of the story. If you thought Zixie was the bad guy, well, you don't know yet. Here we have the Wally Rogues. Wally Wogs? That's how I read them in the originally years ago. It's Wally Rogues, isn't it? Yes. They live on a very high mountain covered by clouds, which obscures the sight of Noland. But then the clouds wall away and... The Wally Wogs see the city and wall down the mountain because they want some new soup. They eat buttons and hairpins and needles, but they love soup, despite lack of judgment. So Nolan gets invaded and the counselors decide to use the magic cloak. But they say search for it, which leads me to suspect that uh, in either the lead scene... Or something aired out or maybe lost to time. Chicky tells them that, hey, the new servant girl ran off with the magic cloak. Even though it's not a good establishment, we know the characters know that the cloak has been stolen, so they go to find it. They find Zixie, who does agree to, to help them, but the cloak has been found by this character named Dame Dingle. So they simplify that little problem from the book instead of the three characters searching all over and asking person after person to tell them where the cloak is they find the cloak with the one person who found it dame dingle who cuts up a piece giving one piece to a jolly sailor man that's in the longer cut on the 2009 uh, editions 70th anniversary yes so they find the cloak tattered in pieces and seemingly hopeless to help them. But after uh, Zixie scolds Dame Dingle, either by Zixie's magic or some magic power the cloak has, it repairs itself through stop motion. There's still one piece missing, but they find it and give the sailor 50 pieces of gold, I believe, in exchange for the one patch of quilt, but they don't have to resort to a magic wish straight away because dun dun dun, dun here comes Nicodemus and his animal friends to help save the city. Yes. <laughs> so animals and people versus wally rogues like these fat, big fat ball-like men with arms and legs and funny heads. I think that makes the people of Noland and the animals a bit more of a stronger character than by actually sticking up and fighting for themselves. And we should point out how all cuts had the Wally Rogues defeated in a slightly different manner from the book. Yeah, in the book, Dixie put a sleeping potion in their soup, and while they slept, they were all tied up and thrown in a river where they floated away to an island where it was assured that they would never disturb anyone else again. But in the film, they apparently used a wish from the magic cloak to send the Wally Rogues back up the mountain. Which was done by playing the scene where they roll down the mountain. In reverse. Yes, which looks kind of weird because in the scene where they roll down, one of the clay balls accidentally breaks. But in reverse, you see it form back together and go back up. (laughs) Oh, I never noticed that. Okay, we should point out how with this 70th anniversary set, on the scene where the Wally Rogues first roll down the mountain and invade the city of Norland, the text screen accidentally includes the line, Zip! Bing! Up go the Wally Wokes. So, um, 
instead of going zip bang down they go, they say up. So Oops when yeah. So on the seventieth anniversary set when they are wished back up the mountain, um, that scene is not in the correct place, let alone twice. But we can point out how, um, with this new knowledge of the deleted scene, we can actually see a bit of Aunt Rivette's rings with her gorgeous new outfit in the victory parade of sorts. Yeah, there's a little victory parade where they head back to the palace. Having freed the city and defeated the Wooly Rogues. They used a bit of a wish, but they did fight for their kingdom, at least. Yes. But in the palace, the fairies arrive and say, hey, you mortals do not use the cloak wisely, so we're taking it back. But Bud manages to get his wish granted, which is to be the best king Norland has ever had. So Bud is made the best king of Norland, and Nicodemus is praised as a... Um, a hero by the other animals, and yeah. is crowned, maybe, I think he's crowned um, a wreath or something. A wreath of laurel? So, yes, and that is the end of the Magic Cloak of Oz, based on Queen Sixie of Ix. The Magic Cloak, not quite of Oz, mm-hmm. but whatever. It still has enough of an Ozzy connection that Oz fans should see it. Definitely, because it also the 70th set also has a scene from the next film, the... His Majesty the Scarecrow of Oz. And we see Mombi a bit in this film too. But we'll see more of her later. And we'll talk more of her at the appropriate time. Yeah. Another reason why it's for Oz fans is that technically Bud, Fluff, and Zixie are Oz characters because they appeared in The Road to Oz at Ozma's birthday. Mm-hmm. A book we have yet to see filmed someday. I would definitely suggest getting the book Queen Zixie of Ix because it is a wonderfully written book. Gorgeously illustrated by Frederick Richardson, which, unfortunately, I don't have the pleasure of seeing the colors in my Dover paperback edition. I see the plates, but they're all in grayscale, black and white, and gray. Yeah. Maybe someday soon someone will reprint it in a proper hardcover with all the color restored, but so far no one said anything. I don't know of any uh, Oz-themed publishers who could afford to do that at the moment. So anyways, yes, definitely. Read the book, get a copy of the film. You can get the shorter one, put it in a variety of different uh, qualities. Pretty if easy. You would, if you were to get the short version, I'd recommend the 2005 set of The Wizard of Oz, the three-disc set. And then there's the 2009 Emerald Edition or Ultimate Collector's Edition. Four-disc. Which has the longer version. At 41 minutes, because all the others are just at 38. So, three minutes? That's pretty good of extended footage. Well, it also depends on the frame rate, right? Because not every silent film gets uh, shown on DVD at its correct frame rate. Sometimes things look a little bit slower than they should or faster than they should, and that's mm-hmm. why they're not being shown at the correct frame rate. The problem is, is that it's very hard to know exactly what that is. Yes, but despite all the faults that this film has had, like how the years have treated it, um, the way it's been cut from one possibly long movie into two shorter films, and then try to be cut back together again, it's still a nice film, despite the deviations from the book and little titles and stuff. It's a good film. Don't be overly critical of it when you watch it, or else you just won't enjoy it. Have an open mind. 
don't have high expectations or high standards. Just think what films and the fil- filmmaking was like back in 1914 and just take it on its own. Don't try to compare it to anything too recent because it, it just can't be compared to that. Especially Avatar. So yeah, that's it. Read the book, see the movie, and you can listen to this podcast again if you want. And if you love Elfenbaum or Oz or any of his Oz related books, this will be a great bonus too. So here we have talked about The Magic Cloak of Oz, which was the second Oz manufacturing film. And next time we will talk about His Majesty the Scarecrow of Oz. And that will end our podcast for the trilogy of the 1914 Oz Film Manufacturing Companies. This has been Jared Davis and Sam Malazzo for the World Podcast of Oz. Thanks for listening, everyone. See you in the next one. See you. Bye.